I want you to imagine with me um, for a moment that you are a senior in college and you are uh, planning to graduate uh, after one more semester and uh, right now in your life everything is, uh, is looking good. You've passed the most difficult part of your studies. You actually have a, a job lined up ready to, to begin your career as soon as you graduate. Uh, you have a, a girlfriend who you have asked to marry you, and she has said yes, and she's about to graduate also, and so you're, you're ex- or a boyfriend, I guess, if you're a girl. But, uh, but uh, you, you have uh, your, your, your wedding plans are, uh, are, are happening, your career is about to start, uh, you're about to finish your schooling, you're excited about your future, and everything's looking bright. And then you go to the, uh, to the admissions office, and uh, you're talking to your counselor about your uh, enrolling for classes for your final semester. And as they're looking at the, the screen, you hear a brief, oh, no. And you think, oh, that's not good to hear. What, what, what is this all about? And they look and they say, oh, I am so sorry. Um, apparently, we've made a brief mistake uh, that we can correct right now. But it's going to mean you have to take one extra class this, this semester. Uh, apparently we missed one of the, 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 the uh, required general education classes early on. And you think, oh, all right, what am I going to have to take? And they say there is a world literature class that you're going to have uh, to pass in order to get your degree. And you say, okay, you know, it's not really even part of my degree plan. It's not really, but whatever. If I have to do it, I'll do it. And so you have one extra class that uh, you're not thrilled about, but you got to take it. Well, you show up for that class, and uh, they start going through the syllabus and everything, and there's a lot of, you know, short reading assignments, reading different types of literature from different places and different authors and different times, and kind of trying to give you one well-rounded view. But there's one assignment you see that it's not a couple pages here and there from a different author. There's one major piece of literature that you are supposed to read uh, the entire thing and then have a final over it. And it is the 1867 Russian novel by Leo Tolstoy, uh, War and Peace. And if you know anything about uh, War and Peace, uh, most printings are over 1,200 pages, and the, the letters are not big, you know, small print. It is a lot of words, and it is a massive book. And so you see that, and you think, I have other classes I have a career that I'm preparing for. I have a, a job lined up. I have a wedding that I'm supposed to be getting ready for. I do not need this assignment. But you begin with the best of intentions. Uh, you are going through your semester. You're doing all of your classes. You're starting to go along with your reading. Uh, but you end up, a day passes and you don't read anything. And that turns into a week. And that turns into a month. And you realize, you know what? I'm not finishing this thing. Uh, Here's what I'll do. I have a test over it. I'm going to try to learn this book the absolute best that I can. And so you, uh, you, you get on uh, the internet. You look up uh, like the plot in Wikipedia. You read that. You get on the spark notes and you get uh, you know, a summary of the chapters. And you get a pretty good idea of what the, the book is about. You, get on the, the, you watch the BBC miniseries they have. It's like six episodes long. You watch everything you can. You watch like the, the 1950s uh, uh, movie of it with, uh, with uh, Audrey Hepburn. And you're like, you, you do everything you can. And you get to where you know the characters pretty well. You learn more about the Napoleon 
Napoleonic Wars. You learn about uh, uh, Pierre and uh, Natasha Rostov, and you learn about uh, Prince Andre and that rascal Anatole, and, and you get to where you have a pretty good idea of what happens in this book, and you think, okay, I didn't read it, but... I think I can, I think more than most people I can talk about the book, and I think I'll be able to answer some questions about it. And so you're preparing uh, for the final. You uh, show up the day of the test. Professor hands out everything uh, that, uh, that is required for the test, and it's one sheet of paper. And you look at it, and there's one question on the top of it. Pass or fail? Did you read in its entirety <laughs> Leo Tolstoy's War and peace. And you know that if you write yes, you graduate, you start your job, you get married, all of this is behind you, it takes half a second to write the word yes, and you are, you know, you have the rest of your, you didn't even want to take this class, this has nothing to do with your degree, it was a mistake that they made to begin with, and it's not your fault you should have to be in there. Yes solves all of your problems. But you didn't, and to write no would mean you fail the course, would mean you have to take another semester, would mean that maybe there's going to be conflict now with trying to start a job while also not having your degree yet. It's going to cause problems. And all of a sudden you think, man, this is ridiculous. I'm just... I want you to think about that scenario for a moment. I actually borrowed that from a, someone who's a professor. I thought it was a good, a good little dilemma. Um, but I want you to ask yourself something. What is the price of your integrity? Most people have integrity to an extent. Most people want to be honest, and most people want to do the right thing. But it's also true that most people, once the cost gets high enough, they have a price where they're willing to sell. You know, if it, if it didn't cost you anything, if you wouldn't have failed, if it wouldn't cost you graduating, if it wouldn't cost you your job, and someone said, did you read War and Peace? You'd probably very easily say, no, I didn't read it. And that'd be the end of the conversation. But right here, saying that will cost you a tremendous amount, even though it's the truth. And so the question is, how much will it cost you to maybe take a shortcut Maybe be a little bit dishonest. Maybe say, I'm just going to write yes, and then I'll read the book as fast as possible so that it's only a lie for a little while. And uh, you can try to come up with all sorts. You can try to theologize and be like, well, God wants people to be happy, and I'm a lot happier if I just write the... And like, you can come up with all sorts of reasons to try to get around having the integrity that would, it would take to write the honest answer and to suffer the consequences. But what would it cost you to tell a lie? What would it cost you to sacrifice your integrity? In Matthew chapter 5, going through the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus is trying to make his disciples, is trying to make his kingdom that which is full of people with uncompromising integrity. When it comes to the way you treat others, when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to, uh, to lust, when it comes to the words that come out of your mouth, he wants you to have an uncompromising integrity, one that no matter what the cost is, you can be counted on to do the right thing, to be a person who speaks truth, to be a person who, uh, who um, stands up for what is right, even when it's difficult to do so, even when it costs you. Um, Jesus had to do this. 
And for Jesus, the cost wasn't just simply, uh, you know, not graduating on time, having to take another test, having to postpone a career or a marriage or something like that. For Jesus, it was actually life or death. Jesus was put on trial, and he had to answer honestly, yes or no, about who he was. He, by the way, Peter had the same thing. Peter was put in a very similar situation later on in the Gospel of Matthew. Yes or no, do you know this man? And the cost was tremendous. He could have so easily just said, no, I don't know him, which is what he did. And then, you know, justified it by saying, but here's what I'll do. I'll fix it real fast. I'll, I'll tell God, you know what, I, I actually do know him. And I was just saying that briefly with them so I could get out of that. But there's, I can't do any work for the kingdom if I'm killed or if I'm crucified. If I'm going to serve you, it's much better to tell a quick little lie, but still love Jesus, still worship him, still give my life to him. And just every once in a while when, when my life is on the line, I'll tell that little quick little brief lie just to get out of the situation, but I'm still going to worship I'm still going to serve. I'm still going to evangelize. Like, he could have done that. He could have justified everything in his head like that. You can always find a way where sacrificing your integrity actually produces for the kingdom. It actually makes things better. And, and things can be, uh, you know, even more productive for what God is doing. And, and, and you can give him even more glory if you will just make that small sacrifice. And yet, what Peter learns is that even though it would cost him, it is better to maintain your integrity in service to Jesus. And Jesus, even though it would lead to the cross, is going to speak truth and honesty. And he calls us as his disciples to do the very same thing. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 33, the next section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts talking about the way we speak. And he says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Okay, so that's a, that's a statement uh, of truth, and it's a good one, you know. Uh, don't make false vows. I think just about everyone would agree with that. Don't, don't lie. Don't, uh, don't uh, swear that you're going to do something or make an oath that you're going to do something and then not do it, especially to the Lord. If you're going to swear uh, or make an oath to God, make sure that it is something that you uh, absolutely will fulfill and that you will uh, make come to completion because you shouldn't, you know, lie to God, and that's a wrong thing to do. And, and if you were to say that to people, just about everyone would say, I agree with that. That's true. You know, everyone Jesus is listening to, they say, yeah, absolutely. That's the right thing to do. But what Jesus does is he takes it a step further than that. And we have so far been talking about lying and saying, you know, don't lie. Jesus is going to go a step beyond don't lie. And he's going to say, don't even make a vow to begin with. What he's going to say is, I want you to be so honest that vows become absolutely unnecessary and irrelevant to who you are and to your honesty, to your integrity. There's nothing you could say that would add to your integrity because you're going to have integrity no matter what. So that's what a vow does, right? You, you say, I'm going to do this or this is going to happen, and then you, you add words to it. You add a vow to it to make certain that what you say is going to happen, you know, to, make, to, really, to really drive home the truth that you're going to be completely honest here. And what Jesus is going to call his disciples to say is that there is nothing you can add to your words. There is no oath that becomes, uh, that can add anything because no matter what you say, you're going to maintain utmost integrity with it. So what Jesus says in verse uh, 34 through 36, he says, but I say to you, make no oath at all 
either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool for his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of a great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. He talks about the futility of oaths because every oath that you make is either about something you can't control or it is an oath where you're binding it uh, upon something that is divine or God. Instead, verse 37, here's what he wants them to do. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. That's quite a statement to make about, uh, about adding to yes and no. He says it's actually of evil. Um, the point I think he's trying to make is to the Christian, if I were to say, I swear upon my life and everything that is dear to me and everything I consider to be good and holy, I swear on the lives of my family and I swear on the lives of my forefathers, I swear now and I swear into the future that I will with utmost honesty and integrity fulfill the word that I am giving to you this very day and I will sign my name to it and I will put a down payment on it and I will do everything I can to make sure that you know that what I'm saying is true. That should be just as meaningful as yes. Because to the Christian, if you say yes, it has all of that behind it anyway. Because you are a person of uncompromising integrity. And you cannot add to your honesty because you're already going to be honest. And so he wants Christians to be people of absolute utmost honesty. One of the the reasons um, why, I think there's a couple of them, why what Jesus says here is interesting to think about. and, uh, And there's some good logic to it. One of those is to think about what is the logic of an oath? Uh, why would somebody make an oath to begin with? And, and I think that there are uh, a couple of reasons why it could happen, uh, some of them with fine motives and some of them with bad motives. But ultimately, the reason you make an oath is to convince somebody to believe you. What it is about is it's about adding words to, to the words you've already said, adding new and fancier words in order to manipulate the thoughts of another person into trusting your words. Now, if what you're saying is true, I can see the reason for wanting to do that. It's a shortcut to getting people to believe you. Uh, you know, there's, there's longer ways to go about getting someone to believe you. But this is a shortcut, and you can manipulate someone into believing you really quickly. You can say a bunch of words where they think, okay, you know what, I have to believe you if you've said all that. But I think the reality is if, if your first words don't mean anything to you, then it doesn't matter how many extra words you add to them. You can make an oath that is 50 pages long, but if the first word of it isn't true, then the 50th page isn't really trustworthy either. So an oath is just a, it's a simple, costless, quick way to try to get someone to believe you, even though, like I said, it doesn't cost you anything, and it's just adding more words. And so if your words aren't trustworthy, then adding more of them isn't going to make it any more trustworthy. So Jesus doesn't see any value to the oath process. Uh, He doesn't see any value just to adding more and more promises and more and more vows and more and more uh, words if your first words aren't going to be accurate to begin with. But also, an oath is a way that if you're trying to mislead someone— you could say enough to get someone to believe something that's not true. Or you can manipulate the situation to where the oath creates a loophole for you to get out of it. And that genuinely seems to be a problem that Jesus is dealing with in the Gospel of Matthew. If you uh, quickly look to Matthew chapter 23, 
In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is going to uh, condemn and to critique uh, the scribes and the Pharisees for a lot of stuff that they're doing. But one of the things that they're doing is making oaths that are either binding or not binding. And you can, uh, you can come up with oaths that, you know, this is one you, you're obligated to keep. But this one you can find a loophole around so that you don't actually have to do it. Uh, if you look at Matthew chapter 23 and verse 16... Jesus says this, Woe to you, you blind guides, because you say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. So here, I think, is what basically being said. You say, oh, I swear to you by the very temple of God that I will do this. And then you didn't do it. And they say, hey, you lied to me. Why didn't you come and do this? And you say, well, I only swore by the temple. I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. And that's what actually gives it its worth and value. And so it's like they've come up with a system of manipulating others. There's other examples that he gives too. In verse 17, uh, where Jesus says, you fools and you blind men, what's more important, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? You could say, well, the gold is what makes the temple valuable. And if you say that, it's a complete misunderstanding of what the temple actually is. It's the value of the temple in the very presence of God that makes that gold worth anything. And then he says in verse, um, verse 20, therefore, whoever swears by, uh, no, back up, uh, verse 18, he says, and whoever swears by the altar, this is another one they would say, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. So again, someone says, oh, I swear by the altar before the very presence of God that I will do this. And then when they don't do it, you say, what in the world? And they say, well, what actually makes an altar worth anything? It's the fact that you offer sacrifice on it. And I didn't swear by the offering that's on the altar. And so they found a way to get out of it. And yet Jesus will respond in verse 19, you blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the altering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by the temple and by him who dwells within it. For whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So that's a brief little section in Matthew 23 that I think gives us a glimpse into the types of manipulation with vows that Jesus is dealing with here. People are finding ways to get technically around what they actually said. They're trying to plant ideas in other people's minds to help them believe something that they have actually no intention of, of doing. Now, in my experience and in our culture, I don't see a lot of that, oh, that kind of overt, uh, uh, you know, I swear by the church building that I'll do this and say, ah, but I didn't swear by the people in the church building and the people are actually the church. Like, I don't see that type of thing going on very much, but I do think we have ways of uh, giving people false impressions even though we know that's not genuinely what we believe or what really happened, and we're doing it intentionally to mislead them. Uh, oaths have a way of misleading people to where you could say, well, technically, I can wiggle my way out of this. And Jesus is saying, you're not looking for loopholes. You're not looking for technicalities. You're not looking for a way to get out of trouble or to make your life better by planting dishonest thoughts in another person's head. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak truth no matter the cost. I want you to be a person of absolute, unwavering, and uncompromising integrity in the way that you speak. Because not only can oaths be manipulated to bring about dishonesty, there's another problem with oaths also. When you look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 36, 
Jesus says, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So there's another problem with oaths. If you swear by earth, which is the very footstool of God, or you swear by heaven, which is the very throne of God, and you swear about something in the future, you have just made a very arrogant statement about your ability to know the future. And Jesus wants you, when you speak, to recognize you have very little control over this world that you live in. And you have very little control even over your own future. Like You can't change the color of your hair. You can't you know, keep it from falling out. You can, there's, there's a lot of things that, uh, that you have very little control over. And when you start making oaths, you act like you are the one who's in supreme and complete control. Jesus wants to add humility rather than certainty to our words. And we're, we're often tempted to do the opposite of that. All the time we're tempted to do the opposite of that. We want people to believe us, and so we say things, oh, it's obviously true that, and we try to add absolute certainty to our words, whether we're talking about the future, whether we're talking about things that we know, whether we're talking about our understanding of politics or the Bible. We want to drench our words in certainty. And I think throughout the Bible, there is a much stronger emphasis on drenching your words in humility. If you're talking about the future, don't say, I swear to you, you have my word. I promise with everything that I have that I will do this because the reality is you might die tonight. Or maybe that thing that you promised, uh, your car will break down and you cannot get there. Or maybe that person will change. And like, there's a thousand variables that could factor in that you're not even prepared for. And so don't make that kind of oath. Later in the Bible, uh, you'll be encouraged to, if you're going to talk about the future, say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this. You know, instead of saying an oath, I promise I'll do this, maybe say something like, I really hope to be able to do this. I'm going to try. If God wills, I'll, I'll be there. But rather than making your words more certain than you can actually have any control over, speak about the future, speak about your intentions with some humility, recognizing there's a lot that goes beyond your actual ability to control. And whether you're talking about the future, whether you're making vows, whether you're trying to do so with humility or integrity, how about the fewer words you say, the better? And just say yes. And you say, okay, I can do that, but how will I get people to believe me? Remember, a vow is a shortcut to getting someone to believe you. Well, I would say dispense of shortcuts. There are no good shortcuts to getting people to believe you. You know the way to get people to believe you is you consistently do the difficult, time-staking effort of constantly proving your integrity by your actions. If you say you're going to do something, then you do it. And the next time when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And if you do that over time, you won't need vows. You'll be a person of integrity. Your actions will verify your speech, and you'll be able to be trusted by people. And that's what Jesus wants in his kingdom. He doesn't want people who try to take the shortcut to being believed. He doesn't want people who try to manipulate vows into deceiving others. He doesn't want people who speak about the future with arrogance as though they're in control. He wants people who speak with humility, people who don't even need vows because their actions will prove what they're saying, and people of uncompromising integrity who will speak truth no matter the cost. And if you can develop those types of habits, that's what the kingdom of heaven is all about.
That's how we speak to one another in the kingdom of Jesus. And that is something that not always easy. In fact, it's very rarely going to be easy. And it might sometimes cost you. It might cost you friends. It might cost you a failing grade on a final. And it may cost you the cross. But that's what the kingdom is all about. And so, uh, in conclusion, uh, Jesus is calling his disciples to be people of utmost integrity, who speak with honesty, who speak with humility, and who don't need to add more words to their promises. A yes will suffice. And if there's anyone here who wants to say yes to Jesus today, to have your sins washed away in baptism, to name him as Lord of your life, to make a lifelong commitment to him, you have the opportunity right now. You can name Jesus as Lord and you can walk away saved, free from sin, with eternal life. And Jesus is offering that to you today. If you have the need, please let it be known while we stand and while we sing.